I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is a stick with a point. Over almost 30 years as an orchestral conductor, I've met so many fascinating people, and in each episode of this podcast, I'll be interviewing those folks behind the scenes who make this fascinating, at times mysterious, and at times confounding classical music business work. So, welcome to episode one, where my guest is recording producer Andrew Keener, who tells us just what it takes to be the guiding hand on countless award-winning chamber music and orchestral recordings. I do hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by my great friend Andrew Keener, who is one of the most respected, revered, and celebrated producers in the classical music business. And I can see him on the screen, and he's sort of raising his eyebrows at me. Andrew, it's absolutely true. So thanks very much for being with us. Clear that the Chekhov has arrived. Thank you for that. (laughs) Well, you and I have known each other for for many years, and uh, I've been a great admirer of your work and love the occasions when we've worked together. And uh, I'm hoping that um, for the people listening to this, you might enlighten us a little bit. As I've uh, said before, the whole purpose of this podcast is uh, not necessarily to to, uh, speak to people who are um, on the concert stage, like soloists or conductors or whatever else, but to talk to people who are absolutely essential to the classical music business, but aren't necessarily in the forefront of people's perceptions. And somebody like a record producer is is very much there. So I want you to tell us what you see as being the role of a recording producer. Well, mixture of things, really. Walter Legg, nobody put it better than Walter Legg, who was um, founder of the Philharmonia Orchestra and incidentally married one of the great sopranos of our age, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, and was producer of most of the recordings of the Philharmonia. He said, that a producer is first and foremost a musical midwife. Mm. And by that, I think he meant that uh, the person sitting in the studio behind the glass, if there is glass, with what's called a talk back, the link the producer has to the speaker in the studio so he can talk to the conductor or whatever, the soloist, um, to realize what the artist has to offer in a positively provocative way. I think um, the producer has to understand what the artist um, is wanting to say with a particular piece of music. The producer has to know that piece of music. There's no excuse, I think, for a producer not knowing the standard repertoire. A theatre director would be laughed off the stage, quite rightly, if he didn't know his Ibsen, his Chekhov, his Shakespeare. And therefore, I think one of the reasons, um, one of the important things to garner a trust with an artist from a producer is uh, that the producer knows the repertoire and the producer must have a good pair of ears, of course, that's a, and be able to read a score, not in the way a conductor can, because a conductor, as you know yourself, Maestro, um, can look at a page and oralize it. Perfectly good word, visualize, oralize. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a good producer can be a good producer by being able to read and hear what he or she reads. And therefore, um, with that assurance given to the artist, the session can proceed with the artist having confidence 
in the um, producer's knowledge, and also the producer can create the right atmosphere for an artist to feel relaxed. You've used the word, I think, in the provocative, and I think that's uh, absolutely essential uh, to this discussion because um, um, whenever I've been on the podium and you've been in the control room, um, you've been provocative uh, up to the line, I'd say, and not beyond. <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh, I'm reminded of something a friend of mine uh, said recently. He's a, he's a leader, a concert master. Um, from the US, um, now working in the UK, let's say, without mentioning any names. And um, he was saying to me the other week um, or the other month, wow, uh, producers really are in control in recordings in this country, aren't they? And I think um, that's an observation that's maybe uh, missing your points there, because uh, whenever um, people work with you, and you have a, a fabulous set of ears there, and you know the repertoire, as you say, fantastically well, when people work with you, they know that they're conducting and they don't need to be distracted by the things that you're more than capable of picking up and you always are and probably getting ahead in other areas as well. So it's, it's wonderful to have you there. And I like that. But there is a line, isn't there, whereby some producers might overstep the mark. And of course, you go away with all of the material in your briefcase on floppy disks or whatever you use in there. And uh, <laughs> I'm being provocative, Andrew, being provocative, you know me. Take your point. Um, I think a lot of it depends on the relationship you have with the, the musician. I mean, with some of the, the relationship we have, for instance, we're also friends, um, and with other people, you can be very, as long as you always, this sounds so fatuous, as long as you always have a smile in your voice when you're saying something is not right, or mm. if you think something is not right, then I think um, keeping the humanity in it is, is essential. Um, going up to the wire, I, I was working with a Russian conductor back in the 90s, a very famous Russian conductor, who is a was a marvelous conductor, and we were doing a British work. And it was very difficult because, uh, like a lot of these Soviet artists, he didn't want to do retakes. And um, we were doing um, the Brahms first piano concerto with a, another well-known soloist. And you know, in the finale, that fugato, where the soloist had a rest, mm. a bit of a rest. And you know, as well as I do, that's tricky. And orchestras want to get that right. Mm -hmm. um, they want to get it vertically right. They want to get all the entries in tune. And it's never right first time. Um, at least not in my experience, um, every bar. And so um, this orchestra was on my side, the conductor wanted just one take. And oh, is right, is okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to say, I said, well, Maestro, we never got beyond Maestro. Maestro, there are many recordings of this in gramophonic history. And I know that this orchestra who you admire more than most other orchestras would want this to be equal to any other recording. And he glowered at me down, the, down the, by the visual monitor, which is trained on the podium. And the leader said, Maestro, let's do it once more. And I learned two things from that. One, always be honest. As long as you're not giving the impression that your ego is overcoming your honesty. 
And the other thing I learned was never underestimate the power and friendship of a good concert master. Right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely essential, isn't it? And that's essential to any conductor as well. You, if you have a great rapport or a working relationship with the concert master or the leader, you know that it's going to be good. If if that bond is not there, you're scuppered. You really are. Well, absolutely, because the concert master, the company I'm talking to, very much accepted. If a concert master is dealing with an idiot on the podium, and the section behind him knows this, then the concert master's job. The diplomacy is ten times as essential, mm -hmm. and the producer has to tread very carefully then to think. Now, do I say this or that because this concert master knows the players behind him or her better than I do, even though I've got this or that friend in the first volumes, but he or she knows these people much better than I do. Now, what should I say this now, or should I wait for him or her to say something to the person on the rostrum? It's timing as well as, as saying. Oh, the horn's flat in bar four. He can we do it again? Yeah, That's yeah. Well, your, your your candor is one thing, but also you stay totally cool under pressure, which is essential. And the recording business is such that um, we're under pressure for time all the time. Um, all the money, time. money dictates that we try to do it in as few sessions as possible. Yep. Uh, you want, and I want, as many sessions as possible. Um, but you always stay cool. So where we can be getting tense and flustered and tired in the hall you know exactly what to say to everyone okay just take 30 seconds everybody let's just relax a little bit things like that you cool people down uh well yes i mean it, it's it's all how a producer presents him or herself what what you or any other artist doesn't necessarily pick up is let's say there's five minutes left in the recording session and there's a difficult fugato passage to do and it's not gone right so far um what you might hear is me saying, okay, folks, plenty of time. Yeah, okay, let's go from the third measure, and we just need the six measures after that. Now I take my finger off the button, and the control room colleagues around me will hear me say, oh, God, there's only three minutes left. Oh, God. And I put my finger <laughs> back on the button. Okay, um, let's do it once more. And um, yeah, that's good. We just need that F sharp in the third one. Excellent, thank you. Oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> And so that that's that's yeah, that's just technique. <laughs> just technique. Well, yeah, you've got a great technique, so as you, as you know already, uh, you must have your own very particular musical taste. Do they do they um, become more pronounced um, in the in the recording process when um, there's oh, yeah. there's repertoire that you're particularly passionate about? Oh yes. Um, the difficulty then, and this sounds very pretentious, I, I dare say, the difficulty then is if there's a work that means a great deal to me emotionally, and which I flatter myself I know very well. Um, let's say Vaughan Williams' Fifth Symphony. Mm. Um, it's, I'm finding it more easy these last 30 years to separate the two halves of my mind and have them coexist independently and without interfering one with the other. Um, recording the Fifth Symphony, which I've done five times, um, to be listening to a take on headphones and as it's progressing, be totally emotionally seared by what's going on and still the other part of my brain analytically thinking, oh, that horn F-sharp has never been in tune with the viola's F-sharp. Okay, note it down, ask for it again later. Don't stop them now. 
because the take is going wonderfully well. Let them get to the end of the paragraph or the 32 bars or even to the end of the movement. And then return to that and say, folks, in measure 64, um, can we just check the intonation between the violas F sharp and the horns sounding F sharp? Um, and we go from three bars before and three bars after and drop it in. Mm. And I've become emotionally trashed by that take, but I hope my analytical brain is still noting the things that aren't right. Mm. Mm. So you've recorded, you were just saying the Vaughan Williams symphonies, how many times? Uh, I'm on my fourth complete cycle now. It's not enough. Uh, and um, various um, recordings of this or that symphony of the mm. night. Mm. And would you say your musical taste is more focused on English, British repertoire than elsewhere? Is that fair? Um, professionally, I'd like to think that professionally, I don't bring any deeper experience, insight, um, calmness to music, which doesn't move me as much as the music which moves me most. But it's also true that conductors will seek you out when they want to record English music. Um, <laughs> okay, um, let's brag. Um, when I was doing um, the two Elgar, I say two Elgar symphonies, not three, um, when I was doing the two Elgar symphonies with Barenboim in Berlin, and um, he was very nice. He said, there's an English person in the control room. Wrong, incidentally, I'm Welsh, but there was a nice thing to say. <laughs> um, um, an English person in the control room who um, is an Elgar expert. I thought, wow, what have I done to deserve that? And this is a man who you know, was married to Dupre, and this is the soloist who introduced him to Elgar, and there's no um, more interesting Elgarian on the planet than him. Uh, and so I, when, one gets, like, like any great artist, a humble producer can get slightly pigeonholed. Um, it's my own fault because everybody knows, who knows me and who's worked with me, that this music means a lot to me. But that's what it is. Professionally, I hope I can, you know. Well, it might be pigeonholing, but um, bragging again, how many, how many recordings have you done, do you think? Oh, you mean in total? Yeah. In 40 years, probably about 14 or 1500. Yeah. So pigeonholing can work in your favor as well. Hasn't, hasn't <laughs> held you back professionally, well, I wouldn't say, no, Mr. Keenan. No, no, it hasn't. Um, How do you uh, become a producer, though, Andrew? How do you actually, what, what happens? Because you, you went to university, didn't you, to, to, to read music? I, I read music at Edinburgh. And mm. it was, um, I lived in Edinburgh for 10 years, 10 of the happiest years of my life. I fell in love with the city on site. Uh, but there are as many ways of getting into producing recordings as there are people doing it, um, especially before the era of Tonmeister courses at university. Um, Tonmeister courses either for producers or engineers. Um, I suspect your listeners know the difference between a producer and engineer, though the two roles. Well, no, that's something we can maybe move on to in a moment. But you tell us how you got into this first. I got into it. Um, well, I was, I was a strange boy, little boy. I, um, when the other kids were out playing football, I locked myself in my room and would play Jacqueline Dupre's Elgar Cello Concerto till the grooves were grey and compare it with Pierre Fournier's um, and anybody else's. I um, think, now why does that record sound good there? Why does that, why does that work? Blah, blah, blah. Um, I was fascinated by the sound records made. I, was, I studied cello as a schoolboy and piano and I was dreadful at both. But I used to do, a, you know, don't look at me like that. You know, I, I weren't there. Um, <laughs> and 
Um, but the one thing that developed my ear was that uh, I would do incredibly crass imitations of artists I admired on records. Mm. I would do Dupre shifts on the cello, gulping shifts. I would imitate the young Byron boy. And that sounds so presumptuous. I mean, it was disgustingly horrible, but at least I would develop a, a way of listening. Um, and then I, I had an inspirational music teacher in a comprehensive school in South Wales, a state school. Um, and then I went on his recommendation, I went to read music at Edinburgh. Um, and this deepened my love of music. And then I went into teaching class music in the state school, which was a big mistake because I was bad at it. I, did, I expected my charges to love my art as much as I did, which is not the essence of a good teacher. And so I ran screaming from the profession and worked in a record shop in London, a very dignified classical record shop in Soho, no longer with us, alas. And we've um, both done that, you know. Yeah. Which one was yours? Well, mine was Music Discount Centre. Oh, so it was MDC. Mine was yeah. EMP handmade gramophones, and some of your listeners of a certain age might have heard of it. This record shop, the great and the good of the recording industry, would come in including an excellent man called Ted Perry, oh, yes. who was about to found Hyperion Records. And he knew that uh, as a brief career between my running from this teaching profession to working in this record shop, I was interviewing artists for magazines mm. and therefore sitting in on recording sessions, waiting for the artist to finish and looking at a producer and thinking that looked so easy. And so I bluffed and messed up my first session was given a second chance by the aforesaid Ted Perry of Hyperion. And, well, I mean, Andrew, to be honest, I, I learned on the job. I had good score reading. I was good at that at university. Um, uh, my instrumental talents were zilch mm. by then, uh, but I was a good listener. And um, I, you know, gradually, when you bluff your way into something <laughs> through overconfidence, if some people sense that with a bit of encouragement, you're experience might increase enough to match your self-confidence. Oh, so many careers your, have been founded on that principle and, and, and great people have gone before you or I and, uh, and there'll be a lot more after as well, I'm sure, with exactly the same uh, thoughts in mind. So let's um, just maybe wrap this up uh, with um, uh, um, a couple of, of uh, um, reminiscences, let's say. I'm, I'm really going to twist your arm here. I, I want some... I want some cock-up stories from, from recordings. I want things that, that have been either, either witty or, or um, unexpected, uh, entertaining, mishaps, this sort of thing. Well, here's one. Um, I remember a few years ago now, quite some years ago, I was recording um, that wonderful piece of music by Benjamin Britten called Nightmare. Oh, yes. For the post office. Um, and this is, the, this is the nightmare of crossing the border, taking the check and the postal order. Letters for the rich, letters for the poor. And it's a wonderful film. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know it. And so I was recording this with the Nash Ensemble, a wonderful virtuosic group of people. And the voice we hadn't yet booked. Uh, and so we set down the um, music as a track. Fine, in order to dub the voice on afterwards. And we got the wonderful Nigel mm. Hawthorne, great British actor, no longer with us, to um, come in six months later, put on headphones, and um, read the poem, um, Auden's poem, to the pre-recorded music. Oh dear. I realized within the first 10 seconds that the tempo that the musicians and the conductor had set was too fast for me. 
and poor man, he was the absolute epitome of professionalism, uh, a delightful man. And what we had to do was record sort of a, a two lines at a time in order that it wouldn't sound as if he was running out of breath. And so this is a nightmare of crossing the border, taking the check in the postal order, letters for the rich, letters for the poor, letters for Thank you, Nigel. Okay, um, can you go from letters from the poor, please? Go from letters to the poor for the next two lines. And we did it absolutely in steps like that. And when I edited it together, I thought, oh gosh, it sounds abnormal. Although the voice doesn't sound as if it's running out of breath. There are no breaths because, of course, we did it in short bits and he didn't have to breathe. And so in order to add some feeling of hum human fallibility to it, um, I did a third um, overdub of breaths. Now and again. <laughs> and I, although I say it I shouldn't, I'm quite proud of the result now. Um, we, we sort of poured the poor man into our car afterwards and took him to Waterloo Station. He lived in the country oh, outside wow. London. And um, that that was a near that was a near disaster, which is sheer professionalism avoided. And, and averted by um, such creativity as well, sticking a few breaths in there. That's brilliant. Well, needs must needs must or needs had to must. <laughs> um, and then another occasion I remember, and this is astonishing, and I still don't know quite the answer. You as a conductor will perhaps tell me, Andrew. I was recording um, Vaughan Williams' Ninth Symphony with the late lamented, another late lamented, Vernon Handley. Todd to his mm -hmm. friends and anybody who we met, he wanted to be called Todd. And I was putting this wonderful performance together, editing it. And the big, I think it's C major, gosh, I thought I knew my volume some these climax attack before the, the saxophones disappear over the haunted horizon at the end. Um, every take started with the double basses early. I thought, oh, this is careless of me. I shouldn't have pointed this out when we should have done retake. So I, very easy to trim it to make it sound bam together mm -hmm. so that's the, the the edit i sent him included that that i thought very convincing trim and he sent back his first edit request list which was always with todd short um and and to to say to to make me seem more modest than i am he said he calls everybody master he said master um what have you done with that that great chord and um, I didn't conduct it like that. And I said, oh, um, well, Todd, the, the basses were early in every take. Well, that's how I wanted it. That's exactly how I wanted it, like, like a piano, like a pianist, left hand before right. And to this day, Andrew, because conducting is a mysterious art to me, to this day, I don't know. I have to believe that a conductor can make that effect just by sheer technique. I also can't believe that he didn't say something before the take to get the effect he wanted. What do you think? Well, I suspect he used his eyes as much as anything at that Interesting. moment. Yeah. Not just his hands and that his eyes were ahead of his yes. hands. And there's maybe a little bit of understanding between him and the principal bass at the time. I don't know. I don't try to manage chords like that. I try the reverse often in some acoustics mm -hmm. in dry acoustics. I try to get the bass section to finish just after the rest of the upper strings. That's interesting. To give a little bit more resonance. Yes. Well, I, as I say, con conducting is a mysterious art to me. I've only done it twice for charity and everybody laughed quite rightly. With <laughs> 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 was a, was a very good London amateur orchestra. Uh, we, we laughed a lot. Um, but um, one, one other thought, uh, one other incident that occurs to me, um, uh, which um, one of the records I produced way back, 
way back in the 1980s of Vivaldi's Seasons with Nigel Kennedy in the English Chamber Orchestra. And it's one of the records I wish I was on royalties for because, you know, classical producers don't get royalties. And I wish I could have somehow wangled a royalty agreement because, as your listeners may know, it, it sold rather well. And um, we did, did I edit, we did it, I edited it, and he said, he, he, he said, oh, well, monster, um, I think um, I want to redo the slow movements. Okay, let's redo the slow movements. So we um, hired the same church, which was a, a completely unsoundproof church in Hackney, East London, um, on the night of the 5th of November. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, a little explanation. Yes, well, the 5th of November, uh, as I'm sure your educated listeners will know, is um, Guy Fawkes' night, the gunpowder plot where Guy Fawkes plans to blow, blow up the, uh, how, the British Houses of Parliament. And so uh, on the 5th of November, um, everybody lets off fireworks in their gardens and there are, there are public fireworks displays, lots of bangs, whees, and all sorts of stuff. And so um, I don't know why I didn't twig when EMI and Nigel booked 5th of November. And Nigel's um, idea to redo the slow movements was to introduce some uh, typically, let's shall we say, inventive cadenza type things that, that, mm -hmm. the band that Nigel does. And if you listen very carefully on headphones to one of the cadenzas, you will hear a Catherine wheel go off in the background. <laughs> you have to listen to tremendously high volume. And you immediately hear Nigel imitating it in his cadenza. <laughs> That's the, the wonderfully wacky cadenzas. And it's on oh, the record. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's the best one. Lovely. <laughs> Hey, now, Andrew, you'd said a little earlier, um, or I was prompting you, um, to tell us the difference between a recording engineer and a recording producer. The two roles, recording engineer and recording producer, overlap. Um, the first thing to be said is that a producer without a good recording engineer is lost. Um, the recording engineer has to be musically literate. Um, the producer, this is most unfair, doesn't have to be um, up there with technical, technological knowledge, and I'm not. I know how a microphone works. Um, I know what stereo is. I know, I know what I need to know. My job is to musically supervise a session, um, to make sure that the artist's view of the piece comes home onto the record in a convincing way, and if I know the artist well, as I think I said, to um, offer counsel, which can be taken on board or not, or thought about later. Um, to oversimplify, the engineer's role is to mix the sound, to sit at the mixing desk and to capture the sound of an orchestra, a string quartet, whatever it might be, in a way which is plausible for home listening. Uh, the two roles, as I say, overlap. Um, I will often, I will give input into the kind of balances I want. Let's boost the woodwind here. Um, uh, there's a peak coming up with a bass drum. Okay, be careful. And also the engineer is somebody I've worked with a long time. We've been on the road together for sessions outside the capital. Um, he and she, all my engineers are he. I don't know why that is. Um, there should be more female producers and female engineers. Um, he will offer you know, musical suggestions and I would be horribly proud and stupidly arrogant if I didn't take them on board and somebody so experienced. Mm -hmm. 
fascinating and entertaining insights from one of the world's greatest recording producers. My sincere thanks to Andrew Keener for joining us. I'd love to get your comments and feedback, so don't hesitate to contact us via Facebook, and maybe you can even offer a few suggestions for potential candidates to interview. Join me next time for a trip into the hive-like mind and world of the truly uplifting Jonathan Pilevsky, station manager of Public Radio's WBJC, and learn more about the challenges of keeping great classical music on the airwaves. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've just been listening to A Stick with a Point. <laughs>